First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is essayist, screenwriter, and novelist Chris Offit. He has written two short story collections, two novels, and three memoirs. He also wrote screenplays for the HBO shows True Blood, Treme, and the Showtime hit Weeds. Offit grew up in Kentucky and lives in Oxford, Mississippi. His latest novel, Country Dark, tells the story of Tucker, a young man coming home to Kentucky after serving in the Korean War. Tucker marries, has children, and works as the best runner for the local moonshine boss. When Tucker's family is threatened, he turns violent in a struggle to maintain what he loves. We began the discussion talking about Kentucky and why Offit chose to set his first novel in nearly two decades back in his home state. Everything I've ever written is set in Kentucky or is about people who grew up there and left, as I did, uh, and the stories are then set often where I happen to live uh, at the time. So I'm familiar with the new environment and I know the, uh, you know, the difficulties of growing up in this geographically isolated world, a very specific culture that is extremely different from the rest of the United States. My, the idea for this novel really was, uh, I would write, uh, uh, a, a grand saga of, uh, of three generations of a family in Kentucky and uh, that would deal with moonshining at the beginning with the grandfather and then the second generation, uh, his his son would be part of the marijuana trade that had uh, oh started in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, and then this this evolution, unfortunately, then evolved into the current drug problems there of Oxycontin and now heroin. Uh, and I just had this idea and I had a big ending that I, uh, in mind for it that were between the second and the third generation. So I just thought, well, I better start with grandpa. Um, and I will write, you know, 50 pages and then jump to the the generation of, that was my own of the people that I knew, um, and I never got there. I I really just kind of became utterly entranced by the character truck Tucker, and by the end of the book, uh, it was only 1971. <laughs> so it it was it wasn't planned. Was there something about the Korean time period at coming home from the Korean War and that time period that also, you know, drew you besides sort of the natural progression of the other stuff you were writing? Well, not, not exactly. I mean, this book takes place when I was a child, primarily. And uh, what I realized is that, you know, and I have a very strong memory of, of my childhood. It was a a community of 200 people, multiple families spread over, you know, three hollers and, and two hillsides. Uh, and we just walked to each other's house, often through through the woods along game paths. And then we graduated riding our bicycles. So it was an unusual world. Um, and I didn't know how, how odd it was and how, how particular it was until I left. 
And over the years, I realized that it was right at the edge of drastic change uh, in the hills of eastern Kentucky, uh, the, the building of the interstate, which connected Appalachia to the rest of the country, uh, the war on poverty, which was more of a skirmish than a war, but uh, had a big impact. And then uh, cable television was, was the next one. And what interested me was writing about the adults who, who were experiencing this, because the world today is very different from the world that I grew up in, just much less isolated. And in other words, the young people and, uh, and everyone is more aware of the goings-ons outside, uh, outside of the hills due to the Internet, due to uh, television. And, you know, the interstate was, was intended, well, we kind of thought it's just going to bring the rest of the world to us. And it'll be great, but really it, it turned, it, you know, it turned into an avenue of escape for people such as myself and all my siblings, you know, it was a lot easier to get out. And then the stuff that came, in my opinion, was not the best parts of American culture, uh, heroin now, of course, but also chain stores, Walmart. So to answer your question, I was really interested in the adults who were experiencing this because it was they were fully inhabiting this world that they did not know was going to be completely different in you know 15 years within their lifetimes as adults. So that's kind of what uh, attracted me to it. And then I looked at you know the history and I, I did the math to get these three generations uh, at the right age where I wanted them to be at the end of this book. And you know that meant the the grandfather would have been born would have been a, a, about the right age have served in the Korean War. Um, and I thought it'll be interesting to make him a veteran because now he's had exposure to the outside world. He's learned some uh, skills and he's coming back home uh, uh, to home where he missed it terribly. Also, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up, there were World War II and Korean War veterans who were, who had done just that, had come back home. So I had known some of them and was interested in it. And when the Korean war, they call it the forgotten war. You just, for some reason or another, our uh, America wants to ignore it to, to a certain degree. Uh, and then it wasn't too long after that, that Vietnam kicked up its heels and that got much more of the attention, um, as, as a recent war. So it's almost, I guess it's almost accidental, you know, like it just, I had pragmatic needs for the character that it dovetailed with the end of the Korean War, which is, I think, in 1954, and when this guy was 17, and he comes home. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Chris Offit, author of the novel Country Dark. Yeah, so your main character Tucker, who you said you you mm-hmm. really fell in love with, he's he's a uh, mm-hmm. he's coming home from the war. He's on a train. He gets off, and he's basically hitchhiking to get back home. And we see some of his mm-hmm. memories from the war as well. He's a he's a man of few words. Tucker is mm-hmm. an instinctive human. I mean, right. we all have right. instinct, but I felt like he really acted on instinct. There's a line in there somewhere mm-hmm. where he's on his way home, and it's like it says mm-hmm. he's he's in the market for a wife. Because of his age. Mm. 
So I found right. him to and be... And he had a little money. He had some army pay. So, you know, he, he's a, he felt as if he had a little money and he was about the right age. So it was time to get married. So he's, I felt like he follows his instincts to go home, to find his wife, mm-hmm. which we can talk about, to father his children. But survival is work. So how does instinct and survival blend or push against each other? And maybe you can't answer that if you think that premise isn't correct. I like what you said that he operates on instinct because he does. And he's, uh, he's very smart. He's very resourceful. Um, he is a kind of guy who will think and then take action. Uh, and what you're saying is it, it's instinctive, but it's not impulsive. You know, he's not reckless. He's very calculating. And he also doesn't waste a lot of time uh, questioning his decisions after the fact. Uh, he doesn't feel remorse about anything he's done. He doesn't start thinking maybe he should have done something differently. By the same token, uh, in his in his life, he's not someone who sits around dithering over what he's going to do. And I wanted to write about a person like that because they exist in the world. I, I uh, have known many of them, and I like reading about characters like that. And I, I don't find enough of them uh, in a lot of uh, you know contemporary literature. So that was part of the motivation for him being that kind of a person. The other thing is I like to talk and I'm a terrible driver and I don't mind drinking a glass of wine. So I wanted to write about a guy who doesn't drink, is a professional driver and hardly ever talks. Then in the course of writing, uh, something occurred to me, which is that here's a guy who's reticent, who listens, who's smart as hell and will take quick action when it's necessary. And then he he responds to situations uh, with thought, care, and action. And I realized that I could put anything in front of him as a character, anything, throw any, as a writer, I could throw anything in his way. And I would be delighted and entertained by his response to the obstacles and the difficulties that I, I stuck in front of him. And I was always, you know, it was, I never knew what he was going to do. I would just kind of give him a, a problem and see what he wound up doing. And writing that way was a, was a joy, you know. And him as a character, uh, the, the sort of lack of hyper self-consciousness or, or self-evaluation uh, allowed him to just kind of flourish on the page the more problems I threw at him. So Tucker comes home. He um, on his way home, he is in the woods camping, and he hears a tussle going on between uh, an older man and a younger woman, and mm-hmm. he comes to the rescue of this woman who's about to be raped by this mm-hmm. man, and he doesn't know at the time, you know, their relationship or anything like that. He's just stepping mm-hmm. in. So why did you want to create a scene like this to reveal his character? My original idea was to have Tucker get off the train in Cincinnati Union Station and walk into the hills of Kentucky where he grew up. I thought that would be a really cool opening for a book. And I wrote about 40, 50 pages of that. During that time, I really uh, you know, became enthralled by him as a character. But I also realized like he hadn't gotten very far. He'd only gotten about 15 miles. I looked on a map. There's another 100 to go. And I thought, 
okay, you know, he's got a, he can't walk this way. It's going to be the boringest book in the world. So I had to have uh, people for him to interact with. And he gets a ride uh, with a guy and then he's camping, as he said, on the land and he hears this and he just sort of, he responds to the situation. You know, he's, he's, he's fresh out of the military. Uh, he's a, was a, a combat paratrooper. He sees someone in trouble under assault and he responds, he crawls, he hides. It's not necessarily trying to rescue her because he doesn't know her. It's more of like, I believe that any human being has an obligation to try to help other people. And especially if they're in a great deal of trouble, like this uh, young woman was. So he he ended up, you know, running moonshine for a boss Mm -hmm. man that lived in the neighborhood called Beanpole. And he Mm -hmm. is running it, you know, into the 60s. so tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about this culture where he was running it that late. I know there was some dry counties and his thoughts about it, because mm-hmm. I don't think it was necessarily like that he was a bad guy or a criminal. He was just trying to provide mm-hmm. for his family. The moonshining culture began in uh, the South and in the hills during Prohibition, of course. And you could make corn liquor or white liquor or, or what they call moonshine because you had to make it at night. That's how it got that nickname <laughs> and sell it. Uh, illegally during prohibition after prohibition uh, and a lot of the people who were the sellers of it you know there was there was a manufacturer and then there was a distributor and then there were the men who drove drove it to uh, places in the state and often out of the state and they were excellent drivers who then went on to become the race car NASCAR was started by moonshine runners Moonshine drivers. So that had always interested me, but I didn't really want to write about uh, NASCAR. Despite the fact that prohibition ended, by that time, there were a lot of uh, young men in particular who had left the South, and particularly Kentucky, moved to Ohio and moved to Michigan. And they had developed a taste for this, their home, their liquor from home. So there was a market there. You could deliver it. And then there was also a market for... Uh, in the dry counties. I grew up in a dry county, which meant you could not buy anything with alcohol in it ever, except there was a bootlegger. And the bootlegger was very near my house. I could walk to it. And I did as a child. I would walk and buy uh, whiskey for my dad. And I realized after I left, like, this is an odd thing. Uh, all I had to do was tell him my name and my dad's name and tell him exactly the type of liquor that dad wanted. And the guy knew I was telling the truth because I was asking for his brand, so to speak. Um, and this this was through the uh, through the '60s. So what I realized, what I learned, is that moonshine runners could do it both ways. They could drive the moonshine to market, say in Ohio, drop it off with someone who would then sell it to the working men who'd moved up there, and pick up a bunch of legal alcohol in the same vehicle, drive it back into the hills to sell to the local people. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Chris Offit, author of the novel Country Dark. So Tucker had a family with his wife, Rhonda. They had five kids for most of it and then had a sixth they, their kids, a lot, most of them were actually special needs. They were born, some of them with really, really awful 
birth defects where they couldn't communicate or get out of a crib at 10 years old. Why was this what you wanted to do to his family? Like, like everybody, I've known you know, many friends and parents who have special needs children, and it is difficult and it is hard for everybody involved. And, you know, there is more and more, there is support, community support and school support, but not always, you know, and never quite enough. And um, in the hills when I was a child, the, the, were the, the people with special needs, uh, kids and adults, were just part of the fabric of the community. They were, uh, they were not bullied. They were uh, not made fun of. They were looked after by, by people, uh, by just the community. If you saw them walking, you give them a ride, you know, and you knew that they were special needs, even if they were a grown man or a grown woman. And they required and deserved a little extra care. And they got it. And I think they, it's possible to get it in a small community where people look out for one another. And that's a cultural tradition. So that was kind of the world that I grew up in. In the meantime, what I've seen in, uh, in sometimes in books and certainly in, in screen narratives is the use of a special needs person um, to be exploited somehow for narrative reasons or, or as a means to generate sympathy for uh, a character. And I did not want to do that. I have known people who have had uh, special needs children, and I've known some families that have more than one. And one is heartbreaking, two is devastating, you know? And I just seemed like if this was his situation, I wanted to show someone, a man, who did not give a shit about any of that or, or what was ex, uh, expected or what people thought other than the fact that he loves these kids is devoted to them regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their cognitive abilities. Tucker, he was not a violent person, but he could be violent when it was necessary. Was this from the war? Was this from Kentucky? Was this just his instinct that was powerful within him? I mean, he was really, as you were saying in the beginning, he was sharp. He knew how to protect himself, but he also knew mm -hmm. how to fight if he needed to. I think it's a, a part of a, a rural a rural environment. The, the hills of Kentucky were have, have been isolated uh, geographically um, since the 1700s, uh, all the land was was taken up by by the pioneers, and the war, the land is so disorganized, the terrain is so tr difficult that the westward expansion just circled it. They went north or south to avoid these this big entanglement of hills, and that helped perpetuate uh, uh, older ways of living. Uh, which was necessary to the, the pioneers, which was that resourcefulness, that willingness to uh, defend oneself. You couple that with a young man who has had, uh, you know, military training and combat experience. But as you said, he's not a violent person. It's just that he can be if when it becomes necessary. And you know, for the purposes of, of this novel. It became necessary. I also think there's probably a lot of people like that. I think it's not just Tucker. It's just it's dramatized in a, in a novel. I believe there's a lot of people in the world who, you know, push comes to shove. You push them hard enough or you, you, you put enough pressure on them. A nonviolent person is likely to take action.
So it's interesting because when you write a really smart character, then you have to be really smart. I mean, you can't write a character that's smarter than you. Well, uh, I don't know. I had never really thought about it. Uh, write a character who's smarter than you. How would you know? Um, I think it's important to write about smart people. And here, here's another thing. is like The people of Eastern Kentucky have been the butt of jokes in this country for many, many years, many years. We, uh, you know, were used for comic relief in um, movies, in books, in television shows, in comic strips, Barney Google and Snuffy Smith, on TV, Beverly Hills, all this stuff. And I object to it. it it's a, it's a, a denigration based on class. And because they are at the bottom of the heap, it's acceptable to use epithets uh, based on race and class that while it's not acceptable for most other groups of people, but you can still look at this world of people and refer to them as rednecks or white trash or hillbillies or weed suckers or any of this kind of thing. And those are kind of hurtful terms and they are designed to denigrate and lower people lower people's opinions in the outside world, and that also lowers people's opinions of themselves. And I am out of that culture, and I've been heard all these terms, and heard hundreds of variations of, oh, you're wearing shoes, oh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want to, what I want to write is books that portray the people who live in this culture as they actually are, which is just as smart as everybody else, just as emotionally complex as everybody else, just as loyal, just as loving, just as industrious, rather than any of these sort of stereotypical attitudes that you see in more popular media. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Chris Offit, author of the novel Country Dark. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? This is a novel called Laidlaw. It's one word, L-A-I-D-L-A-W. It's a character's last name. It's published in 1977 in Scotland by William McIlvaney. Um, I really love this book. Um, in this particular scene, it's it's uh, this book has been called an existential detective novel, and which is one of the reasons I, I decided to read it because I wanted to see what the hell that meant. Um, but the writing is so great that I didn't I never did figure out what it meant. There's a police officer who goes to a house to speak to. A young woman, the young woman is not there. She's at work. And instead, he winds up talking to her parents. Uh, these people never appear again in the book. They have no bearing on any of the, the storyline. Um, and they get into a bit of a disagreement in front of uh, Laidlaw, uh, who is uh, the guy's name. So here's what I'm going to read. This is the couple. They stared across at each other. Laidlaw sat silent. It wasn't the kind of look to interfere in. That stare 
was about 20 years of marriage and was carrying more complicated traffic between them than the M1. It was no longer about a dead girl or policeman's questions. It was about other kinds of death. It was about how much a woman had never got out of a relationship and the decency she had maintained in spite of it, about how much a man had hidden from promises he perhaps didn't even know he had made. It was about pride kept and pride lost. Across that long look, they defined each other. Nothing he had ever been able to do had bullied out of her her hunger for whatever it was she wanted more than this. In her eyes, there was still a light that he could neither feed nor douse. The only one his blusterings had intimidated was himself. He sat behind his enormous mound of Dutch courage and wilted. He did it gracefully. He had been practicing for years. And, the wife said, he did something that she never forgot. She spoke very clearly, very deliberately, carving her words carefully on her husband's silence. I love that. And it goes on, you know. It's a very short scene. It's in the middle of the book. And I love it because, for me, that not even half a page evokes an entire marriage and war between this couple. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky to write or changed a lot from the first draft? Yes, this is a scene. Uh, this actually is a scene that does, that is, uh, here's a new character who will eventually uh, interact with Tucker. Uh, the reason that I'm going to read it is like you said, something that was hard to write. It's very difficult to start fresh with a new character. Uh, it's just like starting fresh with a short story or an essay or a poem. It's a, a, a brand new start. And the information has to get across to, to the reader. Um, and it also has to establish personality and character and uh, the fact that they will eventually meet our protagonist. This is from chapter five, and I wrote this a lot because <clears throat> I wanted to get it right. Uh, it's a social worker. Actually, I don't even think you know that yet. Hattie Johnson left Frankfurt early, heading east toward the hills. She usually made the trip alone every three months, but this time her boss insisted on accompanying her. Hattie didn't like it. She worried that Marvin was finding fault or didn't trust her. He dismissed her concern, explaining that it was good for him to be in the field and get his hands dirty once in a while. Hattie didn't care for the implication that her job or the people she assisted were in any way dirty. Um, then it goes on, but the reason this was difficult was I had to establish the character and how she felt about her job, which is um, she's trying to do a good job at it. Her, she doesn't trust her boss, uh, who uh, has a different attitude towards towards the, the people that they do. They entered the hills, thick and dense, as if a bolt of heavy moleskin had been unfurled in a hurry, still bunched up, its folds and dips never straightened. Marvin opened a worn folder on his lap. It was labeled Tucker, the ink slightly faded, thick with forms and reports. 
So now I've introduced the Tucker, the name Tucker, as having uh, being on a folder, and I believe then that uh, the reader will be able to, to make the assumption that these two people will interact with them. That was difficult. But, you know, it's all difficult, and I rewrite everything. I cut a third out of this book, and I revised it probably 12 times, full revisions, before cutting a third. Where do you write? I write in a room in my house that I've always written in, in my house. Uh, I've written in basements. I've written in attics. I've written in sheds. I've cobbled together spaces and garages. Uh, I like to write in the same house where I live because it's just a little easier if I get an idea. And I can go work. Uh, I put musician-grade uh, uh, soundproofing in, uh, inside the interior walls so it's real quiet. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go to the woods. Uh, I grew up in the woods. Uh, I live on 14 acres in uh, rural Mississippi. And uh, at the end of a you know dirt road, dead ends here. And so I can just walk uh, walk outside and walk around in the woods. I do labor out there a lot. I like doing labor. Uh, I hated it when I was a kid, of course, but now I don't mind it. And uh, I just wander around out there. Occasionally, I'm compelled to go to town for either errands or social activities. But to get away from writing, I just step outside of my house and, you know, there's something beautiful out there, you know, rabbits, squirrels. Snakes, fox, turkey, deer, coyotes at night, cicadas, bird song in the morning. Like I, I, I like to live in a place where I just walk a few steps to sit down to write and then just go outside to get away from it and experience the beauty of nature. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Oh, my wife. She's a novelist. Her name is Melissa Ginsberg. She has a, a novel called Sunset City her first novel, and uh, she's also a poet and has a book of poetry called Dear Weather Ghost, another novel coming out next year, and another book of poetry coming out. So between uh, those two disciplines, she's an ideal reader, and she also knows me. She also knows she doesn't have to be, she doesn't have to tiptoe around anything. Like, I want straight, direct uh, comments, and um, as a poet, there's an attention to the precision of language that she uh, gives me. And as a, you know, as a novelist, she also has an understanding of the, the, that form, pacing, structure, uh, where it gets boring, where it doesn't. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, I'll tell you a funny little story. I had never sent anything off in my life until I was over 30 years old. I had written hundreds of stories and maybe 60 lousy poems. Uh, but I was so terrified of rejection that I just refused to send them out to magazines. I had all these stories. I just would not send them. And I became friends with a, a, a poet, uh, a young poet about my age. This was, you know, 30 years ago. And he was appalled that I had not sent anything out because he had read a, a story and thought it was, you know, he liked it. And he just jumped into a discussion about where I'd been sending stuff and had, you know, who had published me. He just assumed it. And I was so uh, ashamed uh, that I hadn't due to his assumption that, of course, I had, that I thought, well, maybe I better get off my ass and send this stuff out. 
here's the thing. I was still terrified of rejection. So what I did was I printed uh, five copies of every story, kept a running and, and sent, and I, I probably had 15 stories by the time, and, and filled the mails with these stories, five copies, one copy to five different magazines of each story. And my goal was to try to get 100 rejections in a year. That was my goal. And by turning the rejection into a goal that I would want to accomplish, that's how I dealt with it. And boy, those stories started coming back in the mailbox and I kept running count. Uh, you know, there was, it was like a horse race. One story had been rejected the most. Uh, one day I went to the mailbox. This is just a, another rural county road where I'd walked to the mailbox and there were three stories in there that had come back from three different magazines. So that was like the best day of all because I had notched up three rejections closer to my goal. That's how I dealt with it. What is your favorite word? I probably have a few. I mean, I like the woods because it's uh, it's not so much my favorite woods, but what it means, what the word represents. Uh, I like the word velvet because I think it sounds nice, has two V's in it. It's very pretty, but it's, again, very specific. But ultimately, my all-time favorite word is assassin because it's the only word in the English language that has the word ass in it twice. <laughs> You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Chris Offit, author of the novel Country Dark. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.